Well, good morning. If I have not had the privilege of meeting you yet, my name is Ryan. I have the joy of being one of the pastors here at Arrow Heights. We're so glad that you're here with us as we open God's Word together. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 52. Today, Mark 14, 43 through 52. And over the next several weeks leading up to Easter, as we continue through the book of Mark, we're going to walk through the series of events that lead to the death of Jesus. At this point in the text, Jesus has less than 24 hours to live. We're going to hear Jesus accused before the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. We'll watch him be examined by the Roman governor, Pilate. We will jostle with the crowds as Jesus stands before the governor, Herod Antipas. And we will see Jesus tortured by Roman soldiers, paraded through Jerusalem streets, nailed to bound pieces of wood, suffocated before gawking crowds, and crying out as he breathes his last. For now. Yet even as we walk this grueling trek in the footsteps of our rescuer, we're going to see something very apparent at every step. And what we're going to see is this, a battle for control. So over the next several weeks, we'll see Jesus before many different authority figures. The religious rulers, the occupying Romans, the fashionable Greeks, the mighty soldiers. In his his final hours, Jesus was passed around from supposed authority to supposed authority as each and every one of them attempted to pass on the responsibility while still asserting something about their prominence and their power and their position. At every station, people wanted to show how much they were in control without actually having to exercise any of it. And why? It's because they truly didn't have any. But as we will see, there is one who did. You know, last week we watched as Jesus and his disciples went out from Jerusalem through the Kidron Valley up the hill to the Garden of Gethsemane, which was a place Jesus and his followers often frequented. Gethsemane was a quiet, it was a secluded place. It was a place where Jesus would writhe in agonizing prayer over what he was about to endure, yet would declare with steeled confidence to God the Father, yet not what I will, but what you will. As those who promised never to abandon Jesus lay asleep all around him, Jesus watched Judas, one of his disciples, lead a mob across that same valley, up that same hill, to take him by force and arrest him. And at this sight, verse 42, Jesus said, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Which leads us to a question. Why did Judas betray Jesus? Well, there are many ideas, likely All of them valid. One idea is just greed. 
John 12, 6 tells us that Judas was in charge of the disciples' money bag and would often steal from it. He was an embezzler. He was willing to compromise himself for the sake of his greed. Another idea is expectation. That Judas likely believed attaching himself to this miracle-working man from Galilee would bring him glory and position and power. And Judas' patience with Jesus to do what he expected of him was running short. Jesus wasn't living up to what Judas thought he should be. The third idea is, is power. That Judas saw Jesus as a means to an end. And that end for Judas was personal gain. And if Jesus was going to be slow in giving it to him, then he would have to take it for himself. So which was it? Greed, expectation, or power? Well, I think it was probably the greedy expectation of power. But regardless, Judas, one of Jesus' chosen twelve, was now enacting his plans to murder Jesus. So let's look at it in the text. Mark 14, beginning in verse 43. And immediately, while he, this was Jesus, was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi! And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber? swords and clubs to capture me. Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. So as we enter back into this passage, it's important to note that Jesus had every opportunity to avoid his betrayal and arrest if he had so desired. Jesus easily could have taken the disciples somewhere that Jesus didn't, Judas didn't know about. When Jesus saw Judas and the mob with their swords and torches, he could have simply run away or just disappeared. This wasn't even the first time that a mob had tried to kill Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, a crowd of people wanted to throw Jesus off a cliff, and he just walked straight through the middle of them and went on his way. John 10, 17 through 18, right before some people tried to stone him to death, Jesus declared, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. 
from his conception to his resurrection and every step in between and beyond, God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son were fully in sovereign control. And that control would be exercised in his way and in his time and for his purposes. Look, verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. So notice in verse 43 how Mark kind of frames this encounter. He says, Judas came, one of the twelve. There's still a current of just bitter disgust as Mark writes these words about Judas. Judas had walked step by step with Jesus for almost three years. He had witnessed every miracle. He had heard every teaching. Judas Iscariot was one of the 12 most privileged persons in history in terms of recognizing God the Son among man, and still Judas sought to betray him for personal gain, for money. And now, Mark says, Judas, one of the 12, leads a coordinated mob against Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, with its distance from the city, its coverage in trees and seclusion from the Passover festivities, Gethsemane would have been the perfect place for the religious leaders and the Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus away from public view. And Mark says, and with him, or with Judas, a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Okay, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders would have been the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling religious elite in Judaism. Now, they didn't carry swords and clubs. They were, they were far too stately for that. The clubs would have been carried by the temple police, whom the Sanhedrin apparently brought along with them. And beyond that, the swords would have been carried by the Roman military. Now, why was the Roman military there? Well, to formally execute someone, Rome had to be the ones to pull the trigger, so to speak. Now, Rome couldn't care less about Jesus unless he was a disturber of the peace. Rome stamped those people out like cockroaches. Therefore, the, the Jewish leaders had to convince the Romans that Jesus was an insurrectionist powder keg just waiting to go off. And in doing so, the religious leaders could secure a group of Roman soldiers, not only to put Jesus down, but to make a strong showing to this fervent crowd of over two million Jews that gathered in Jerusalem who was in control. In John 18.3, we're told that Judas secured a Roman spira, which was a cohort, which would have been anywhere between 600 to 1,000 soldiers. John says that the soldiers were accompanied by a tribune or a military commander. So this wasn't what we often see in the movies. This wasn't a small operation. 
This was an overwhelming show of force to bring against one man. And it was meant to be that way. The religious leaders wanted to display their power and their influence. The Romans wanted to flex their muscles. And so together, these unlikely allies wanted to make a show of their control over Jesus. Verse 44. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. Okay, so notice, whereas Mark previously identified Judas as one of the twelve, just one verse later, Mark refers to him accurately as the betrayer. Judas has revealed himself. The wolf in sheep's clothing has shed its wool and bared its teeth. And in betraying Jesus, Judas told the mob he would use a sign to designate who Jesus was. But why did they need a sign? Didn't they know who Jesus was? Well, yes and no. Remember the Sanhedrin who had chased Jesus around the temple knew what he looked like, but they were hiding behind the force of the Roman soldiers who had no idea what Jesus looked like. Also, recall this is happening in the dead of night amongst trees. So it might have been difficult to differentiate who was who. So just so there would be no mistake, and highly likely just so Judas himself could strike the match, Judas designated a sign. Verse 45. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. So, Rabbi, Judas says, which means great teacher. This is a word of honor and respect offered to Jesus in just dripping mockery and disdain. Judas is making a show of Jesus. Verse 45. And he kissed him. In ancient Middle Eastern culture, as it is today, a kiss between men, either on the hand or the sleeve or the cheek or even on the feet, was a sign of affectionate respect, even honor. Judas, however, uses such a kiss as a means of condemnation. Mark says, and they laid hands on him and seized him. Now, from the accounts in Matthew, Luke, and John, we know that much more took place in this interaction between Jesus and Judas and the mob. John highlights the fact in John 18, 4 through 6, that after Judas identified Jesus to the mob, Jesus came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So while the mob came to Jesus with, with torches and swords and clubs, Jesus raised no weapon in response, save one. Jesus gives nothing but a word. 
Yet with that word, Jesus knocks the entire mob to the ground. And that word, I am he. Unmistakably, Jesus uses the identifying name of God that the Hebrew people had known for centuries. I am Yahweh. In one way, Jesus was displaying who the lion truly was that they were seeking to tame. Jesus was giving just a flash of who truly held the power in this situation. The word that spoke creation into existence now declared his name to those who sought to subdue him. And in doing so, he leveled them. But by stepping forward, Jesus was not only presenting himself, but he was also protecting his disciples. As the mob advanced, Jesus stepped forward, reminding the mob that they had come for him, no one else. He didn't need a betrayer's kiss to be identified. He would identify himself. And since they had come for Jesus of Nazareth, he was all they needed. And he was offering no resistance. Let the rest go. I am he. You know, I think it's interesting what Mark chooses to include in the account at this point right here. Because as as we said, Mark's gospel is really Mark's recording of Peter's account. This recollection is Peter's telling. And though Peter and Mark leave much of the Gethsemane interaction on the cutting room floor, look at what they do include. Okay, verse 47. One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now it's possible that this servant would have been a bodyguard of sorts for the high priest wearing a common type of helmet in this very volatile situation which left the ears exposed so that the helmet's wearer could hear. If this is the case, then the sword bearer was likely aiming for and possibly struck the servant's helmet only to have his sword slide off and sever the exposed ear. Now here in Mark's account, we aren't told who it was that drew the sword and cut off the servant's ear. But in John's account, he says, yeah, it was Peter. (laughs) John also tells us that the servant's name was Malchus. A historical detail that would have been left out had this accusation been falsified or simply made up. Mark is leaving a trail here. He says, you don't believe me? Go ask the man himself. Go ask Malchus what happened. Malchus wasn't a follower of Jesus. But Malchus was certainly an eye or ear witness to what Mark... That was cheesy. He was a witness to what Mark was recording. But but look what's happening here. Look what's happening here. Recognizing the situation and seeing Jesus before the mob, Peter decides that he would take control. And he does so by using force. Sword for sword, though drastically overmatched, Peter wanted to assert his strength. And to a degree, this this is somewhat admirable of Peter. I mean, he wants to fight 
for Jesus. But it's at this point, Luke twenty two fifty one 51 tells us, that Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched Malchus's ear and healed him. Matthew 26, 52 through 53 records that Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Again, Jesus displays miraculously, yet humbly, who truly has the power in the situation. Jesus has shown the mob, and now as he makes clear to Peter, I am in control. Verse 48. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber? With swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. So while Judas sought to make a mockery of Jesus by identifying him in the dark, Jesus now brings the cowardice of the people who are vainly hiding behind their illusion of control far into the light. He says, if you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me, the Greek word here for robber refers more to a a type of bandit, kind of a smash and grab thief who would try to escape and violently resist arrest. Jesus is saying, is that what I look like to you? Is that what it looks like is going on here? You want to display your controlling power and position through mass and might by bowing up to see how big you can be. Well, you're really brave in the dark of night, outside the city, while no one's watching. But tell me, where was this strength? Where was this bravery? Where was this control, as Jesus says, day after day, when I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me? Jesus says, what was I doing then? Planning an an insurrection? Robbing the place? No, he was just teaching. And what did they do then with all their supposed power and control? Absolutely nothing. Jesus isn't being rude or even antagonistic here. He's just stating facts. He's exposing the reality of the situation by illuminating the darkness with truth. He's exposing how little these big people are. And why did they do nothing? Because they knew they were emperors wearing no clothes. Beneath all their bravado and their posturing, they knew they had no power. They just didn't want anyone else to know it. Jesus was a threat to expose their system. If they admitted that Jesus was who he said he was, the Christ, they would have to admit that they were who they were, his obligated servants. So rather than surrender to Jesus as king, they chose to shut their eyes and try to shut him up because beneath their guise of control, they were 
cowards. Yet even after exposing them, Jesus lets them continue with their charade. Why does he do this? It's because as Jesus says clearly, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Church, what was taking place on that Passover night in the Garden of Gethsemane was not a surprise attack or a covert operation. It was prophecies being fulfilled. The Old Testament prophecies which foretold the redemptive plan of God were coming to fruition before their very eyes. Psalm 41.9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now in Judas, that betrayer had a face and a name. Isaiah 53, 7 through 8, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Now Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, would be bound and taken away by his physical oppressors under the judgment of his verbal accusers, yet he would not resist. Zechariah 13, 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. God's prophetic pronouncement is now played out in real time and space as swords gleam in the torchlight, restlessly waiting to taste the blood of the shepherd that they will strike. And the sheep turn their backs and they scatter away, just as God in the Old Testament said they would. Verse 50. And they all left him and fled. And the young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But they left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Look at, what, look at what Mark says. They all left him and fled. Okay, this, is, this is not just an observation. This is a confession. Even as Mark records, this young man who had followed them ran away naked. Now, question, what's that about? Okay, well, well, tradition holds that the Passover meal took place at young Mark's family home, which had become a place where Jesus and the disciples commonly gathered. Now, if that was the case, then young Mark likely wanted to see Jesus and be around the disciples and had snuck behind to observe everything that would take place. But he never expected this. Mark, in his own way, is confessing I was there. I did this too. We all left him and fled. It wasn't only Judas who betrayed Jesus. It wasn't only Peter who denied him. It wasn't only Mark who ran away exposed. 
Every single one of the disciples who had just asked Jesus at the Passover supper, is it I who will betray you? Now put feet to their fears and ran away from Jesus. Now, why did the disciples run away from Jesus? Because they feared the display of power and people and force against him. And they wrongly believed that such things indicate true control. Why did Judas betray Jesus? Because he wanted to use Jesus for his own personal gain. Why did the religious leaders want Jesus dead? Because Jesus was a threat to their illusion of authority. Why did the Roman soldiers go along? Because any disruption of peace would be a threat to their control. Yet who was the only one who held any amount of control over the situation? It was Jesus, the Christ, receiving the kiss of death from his betrayer, yet still calling him friend. Healing the severed ear of one who came ready to physically attack him. Demanding that Peter put away his sword, his only means of defense. Surrounded by every power of earth, clamoring to maintain their illusion of control, Jesus, the Messiah, alone truly held it. Why then did he wield it in this way? As Jesus said, let the scriptures be fulfilled. And what do the scriptures say? John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. So it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In other words, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen God is in control of it all. He is the author and this is his story. The question is, What will you do with that? Like the religious leaders and the Romans, would you come at God trying to flex your muscle 
that he might be so impressed by you that he would bend to your will. Jesus looked at a frothing mob of armed soldiers and power brokers in the middle of the night and didn't bleak. I mean this with kindness, but who do you think you are? Like Judas, would you betray Jesus with false affection and humility, secretly seething because you believe God will not give you what you think you deserve? Like the disciples, would you simply run away, exposed for fear of what might happen if you aligned yourself with this man, Jesus of Nazareth? May I invite you today, instead of fleeing from this man or trying to oppose him, that you come to him, surrender to him. Lay down your weapons and follow him. That though he would walk the path, you would follow in his steps. That though he would be crucified, you would nail your old self with him. That as the father receives the only payment for sin, you would give yours for its inclusion. That as he is raised to life, you might receive new life through him. And to do so will require that you lay down your illusion of control. Something Judas and the religious leaders and the Romans were not willing to do. You will need to confess, Jesus, it's not about me. It's all about you. All of it. I surrender myself to you all of my life for the rest of my life that by the one who used his power to lay down his own life, mine might be saved. And I promise you, when you do that, you will find him faithful. Will you surrender to Jesus the Christ? Or will you still demand that he surrender to you? Admit and confess today. Who is in control? Let's pray. Well, God, we thank you for this gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That we who stood as your enemies against you, we who wanted to be control, we who wanted to be on the throne of God, that we could become your adopted children, that we could be embraced by you with love, and that we could only do so because you sacrificed of yourself to be the infinite payment for the infinite penalty that we owed for our infinite sin. God, help us to see this clearly. Help us to embrace this rightly. Oh God, do what only you can do. And bring new life. 
traitors like us. We thank you, God, that regardless of who we are, regardless of what we have done, when we come to you, we find a father with open arms. We find a savior willing to forgive. We find purpose and new life as guided by your Holy Spirit. Jesus, it's in your name that we thank you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.